Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 to 25. The 47th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on July 16, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 19, Translation, Installment 2017, number 6, accompanies this talk. I'm going to jump right in where we left off. We're in the last chapter, chapter 13. We're on paragraph 93 in my translation. And we are in his very last final concluding instructions. The thing that ties all of this together, I argued last week, is that all of these instructions are very apt instructions for his readers who are in the situation that they are in. His readers are being persecuted. Because they're being persecuted, they're going to be inclined to not always act in a way that is righteous and wise and appropriate in their relationship with God. They may want to forego being righteous because that's going to get them in trouble. So he's reminding them of what the right way to be is and the right way to think about their lives in the light of the uh, pressure that they're feeling, the tribulation that they're feeling. So we're, the last one he mentioned was marriage is to be held in honor among you and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And as I mentioned last week, that this is the one instruction that doesn't obviously fit the pattern because what does that have to do with persecution? Uh, but I argued that the pursuit of sexual purity is such a distinctive of a follower of Jesus, although it may also be a distinctive of a Jew in that day, and I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's such a distinctive, certainly, of a follower of Jesus that if you want to fly under the radar and not be made a target by people who are persecuting disciples of Jesus, you may want to not be obvious about your sexual purity. And so you may compromise yourself uh, sexually in order to um, blend in with the incredibly immoral culture of that day. The Roman culture of that day was incredibly uh, immoral sexually, and so to blend in with them, you would probably go see a prostitute. You wouldn't deny your friends saying, let's go down to the house of prostitution. Oh, okay, sure. To not do so is going to make you stand out and be very distinctive. So I think that's why that's included on this list. I, I think it fits the pattern. Now we come to the next one. Your manner is to be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never, you, never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So then we, being undaunted, say, 
The Lord is my helper. Indeed, I will not be afraid. What shall a man do to me? Okay, what does this have to do with their circumstances? One of the ways in which they were being persecuted is they were being ripped off. Uh, When you have the system against you, when the authorities, the judges, the, the people in power are against you, injustice can be done to you and you have no recourse. You have no way of uh, uh, addressing your grievances. So people can kind of shamelessly and, and uh, w- without any compunction rip you off one way or another, cheat you, rob you, steal from you, take what is yours. That's one of the things that's putting pressure on the, his readers. Following Jesus is impoverishing me. Following Jesus is making me be the victim of all kinds of injustice. It's, is it worth it? That's the question. So he says, your manner is to be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Now, what, why would that be an antidote, or why, why is that the righteous thing to do? Nobody loves money for its own sake, obviously. We love money for the power that it gives us to address our circumstances and to control our lives. The question is, what do we want more? Do we want what God has to offer me and what God has promised me and what God guarantees to me? Is that what I want? Or do I want what money can get me? If you, if you love money, you want what money can get you. And you're willing to sacrifice having what God will bless you with in order to have money and what it can get you. And, and Paul is arguing that's just exactly backwards. We should be willing to forego what it is that money can get me if I need to in order to secure what God will bless me with and what God will grant me. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of value. What do I want, the eternal blessing from God or what life offers me now if I have enough money to get it? And he's just his exhortation here is, in effect, you need to want what God can, can bless you with in eternity. That's the greater value. That's the greater treasure. That's where wealth lies. Don't give up that just for whatever it is that money can get you. In this life, here and now, for where you all are now, be content with whatever status you find yourself in. You don't have much, be content with not having much. It's not worth it to, to go after more and insist on more because there's a big price that you pay. You are, you are compromising your commitment to the eternal things of God. And you don't want to do that. At, 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 in no event do you want to do that. He quotes two passages, one out of uh, Deuteronomy and the other out of a psalm. What's interesting is the Deuteronomy passage has nothing to do with me. It's no promise to me. Neither is the psalm, as best I can tell, a a promise to me. It's a promise to, uh, I can't remember now, it's been a while, but I think 118 is to 
to the Davidic king, if I remember correctly. And Deuteronomy is a promise to Israel, basically, to his people. Uh, has nothing to do with me. So why is this relevant here? And not only does it have nothing to do with me, it has nothing to do with his readers. It's not a promise to them. But although it's not a promise to them, it's a window into the character of God. This is a God who said to his people, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. This is a God who said to whoever the psalmist is, the Lord is my helper. Indeed, I will not be afraid. What shall a man do to me? It's a promise of protection and safety and security and success with respect to what he has promised these particular people. Well, we have promises too. We have a promise given to us. The promise given to us is that we believe, if we believe in Jesus, Jesus will have our back. And he will be our advocate and our intercessor such that when the decision time comes for whether or not I'm going to be granted life in the kingdom of God or destruction and condemnation, Jesus is going to advocate for me having life in the eternal kingdom of God. That's the promise. For those of us who belong to Jesus, that's what I can count on. Well, the same God who made these particular promises to Israel and to his Messiah in the Old Testament has made that promise to us. And the same character that's going to make him faithful to those promises to them is going to make him faithful to to that promise of the gospel to us. So we should be undaunted, as the psalmist puts it, what shall a man do to me? If God is committed to giving me eternal life, the blessing of eternal life, just as he promised, what can any human being do to harm me? Now, the, the irony in that is you kind of have to have eyes to see the truth in what he's saying. Because there is that voice in us that wells up and says, well, 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 he, well, he could kill me. <laughs> Well, he could hurt me. He could put me in prison. He could rip me off. And that voice is pretty loud. But the point of the psalm is, but that's trivial. That's trivial compared to the blessing that he is going to give me and that he's promised me and that he's guaranteed to me. It's being robbed of that that's being robbed of something substantial. It's being robbed of that that is actually doing harm to you, eternal harm, everlasting harm to you. So the, these, uh, these passages, I think, are all about uh, un- get your perspective, get your priorities straight, get your, get your order of values right. Anything that money can buy, anything that this world has to offer is nothing and is trivial compared to what God has promised to grant you. So focus on that, strive for that, seek that, remain faithful uh, to what you need to remain faithful to in order that God will grant you that. That's what you want. Don't be chasing what money can buy. So if you have that perspective, then the persecutors don't look quite so big and spooky any longer. What are they going to do? Rip off everything I own? That's all. It's all they can do. 
Okay, moves on to an entirely different point now. Remember your leaders who proclaim to you the message of God. Now, I think reading our typical translation, it, it tends to f- put the focus on remembering the leaders. I don't think that's his point. His point is not to remember the leaders. His point is to remember the message that came to us through the leaders. Notice what he says. Remember your leaders who proclaim to you the message of God. And then he goes on to say, eventually he says, Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday and today, indeed, into the ages. Well, what's that all about? The gospel message that proclaims the truths about Jesus remains the same message for all time, throughout all of eternity. Well, where did we get that? From the leaders who proclaimed the message of God to us. So that's what he's focused on, is the gospel message, the content of the gospel. So when he says, remember your leaders who proclaim to you the message of God, basically what he's saying is, remember what they taught you the truth about Jesus is. Don't go chasing the latest, greatest, newest version of the gospel. Don't, don't go chasing another take on who Jesus is, another perspective on who Jesus is. Don't go pursuing another gospel, a different gospel. The gospel that you want to be invested in and committed to is the gospel that your leaders proclaim to you. So I think the leaders that he's talking about here Remember the time in which this is written. This is during the lifetime of Paul. The leaders that he's talking about are the, the original disciples, the eyewitnesses, uh, Paul, who in his own right is an apostle, Paul's emissaries. The leaders are the first-generation, original students, disciples of Jesus, who proclaimed Jesus to the world. Well, those are the leaders that we are to remember. Remember them, those leaders who proclaim to you the message of God. Thinking back on the escape afforded by their way of life, imitate their belief. Okay, what is he saying? As you think back on what it was that the message of God that they delivered to us, what is it that they proclaimed to us? They proclaimed escape. Escape from what? Escape from condemnation, death, destruction, the complete nullification of my being and my existence. That's the fate of every human being uh, left to himself or herself. We are headed for destruction. We are headed for complete obliteration and annihilation. Well, thinking back on the fact that their way of life, and what way of life does he mean? Discipleship to Jesus, pursuing becoming a student of Jesus who listens to his message, listens to his teaching, believes it, and imitates it. Uh, The way of life that they taught affords us escape from condemnation and destruction. So as you think back on what it is that it offers us, imitate their belief. Believe the message that they proclaimed. Believe the gospel that they taught. And then he makes that statement. Jesus the Messiah is the same yesterday uh, and today, indeed, into the ages. 
the message of Jesus does not change. And, and by the way, it, Jesus here is just metonymy for the message about Jesus. It's, he's not saying Jesus doesn't change. He's saying the message about Jesus does not change. Granted, Jesus probably doesn't change. That's probably true, but that's not his point. The point he's making is the gospel doesn't change. There, so the next sentence, do not get led astray by various and novel teachings, for it is good for the heart to be made sure on the basis of grace, not on the basis of foods. Okay, what is he talking about? The right thing, the true thing, the accurate thing is for my, my inward confidence about where I stand in relationship to God. That's what he means by to be made sure. What, what it, to be made sure of what? To be made sure of where I stand in, in relationship to God. Am I going to receive mercy from him or am I going to receive judgment and condemnation from him? Do I belong to him? Do I not belong to him? I, what I, I crave that kind of surety. I crave that kind of certainty. Well, the, the accurate and true and right and good thing to do is to look for that surety not on the basis of foods, but on the basis of grace. Recognizing that this, this standing before God where I find acceptance by God is going to come to me simply as a gift. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I don't do something to get it. It's just the profound mercy of God saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this thing. You don't deserve it. I ought not to give that to you. Justice would suggest otherwise, but out of my mercy, I want you to have life in the eternal kingdom of God. And it's my confidence in the mercy of God that is able and willing to give that to me as a gift that I can become certain and confident in the insides that I'll be okay. My eternal destiny is going to be okay because look who God is. Look at the depth of his mercy and his grace. Now he contrasts that with foods. Now as tempting as it is in this day and age to say it's not diet (laughs) that is the issue, I don't think that's his point. He's not contrasting diet with grace. He's contrasting temple offerings with grace. The food that he's talking, that in the temple offering in the system, uh, many of the offerings, not all of them, but many of the offerings, you took the animal to the, uh, to the priest, he slit its throat, took the blood, did various things with the blood when he had drained it, and then he cuts it up, slices it up, and in many cases, he gives some back to you, and you're supposed to take it and have a feast with it, barbecue it and eat it. And that's your religious obligation. That's part of the offering. That's part of the sacrifice. Now, notice the context here. What are Paul's readers doing? They're growing weary of being followers of Jesus and they're just simply drifting back into the way of life that they had originally been trained up in, which means going to the temple on a regular basis and offering the appropriate offerings and doing what good Jews will do, including eating from the altar. 
eating the offering from the altar. Well, is that is that where your confidence and your certainty comes that you are rightly related to God? We've had a whole writing here in the book of Hebrews saying, actually, that doesn't do it. Offerings ultimately are worthless for my standing before God. Never was the basis for God granting me mercy, never will be the basis for God granting me mercy. That's not, that's not where it comes from. It comes simply as a gift because God is willing to be merciful, period. So, the heart should be made sure on the basis of my understanding of grace, not on the basis of the temple offerings that I've decided to go back and do religiously and, and make a part of my life. Then he comments further on that. The ones who are living on the basis of these have not benefited. You don't, you don't get mercy for offering these offerings at the temple. We have an altar from which the ones who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. So just a metaphorical way of saying, just as going to the temple and eating of the offering that you offered up in, on the altar at the temple is one religious practice, if you can dig it, we, there's another offering that's been offered up on a different altar, and we're going to eat from that. And when we are eating from that is what gets us eternal life and the blessing of God. It's not eating from the altar at the temple. It's eating from this other different altar. And the people who, who are practicing the offerings in the temple, they don't even have a right to eat from this altar that we are eating from. Okay? So, uh, basically, in a nutshell, what is this paragraph saying? Remember what your leaders taught you about where our escape from condemnation comes from. Persevere, remain faithfully committed to that truth, and don't go, don't go uh, back to the, to the offerings in the temple. Don't return to that. Stay faithful and true to what your leaders taught you is the significance of Jesus and his death on your behalf. Shifting gears, now he makes another point. Now the bodies of those living creatures whose blood is brought into the sacred precincts by the high priest for sin, these are burned outside the encampment. Okay, what's he talking about? This is an allusion back to the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, there were two sacrifices in particular, a bull and a goat. And the high priest laid his hand on the bull and on the goat, uh, slit the throat of the bull, took the blood, did a bunch of things with the blood. Actually, there were, there were two goats on the Day of Atonement. Took one goat, that was, one goat was a scapegoat. They just took it out and let it go in the wilderness. The other one they sacrificed there in the, in the, uh, on the altar. Now, what happened to the bull and the goat that were sacrificed on the altar? They had to take their carcasses, their burned carcasses, outside the camp and dispose of them outside the camp. They dared not leave them inside the camp. And by camp, 
We're, we're thinking back to the time of the tabernacle out in the wilderness where they literally lived in tents in an encampment. Well, outside the ring of the tents, outside the encampment, that's where you had to take the ashes and the carcasses of these sacrificial animals. Now, why? Well, it seems to be, at least the author of Hebrews is interpreting it, as it has everything to do with the fact that the high priest laid his hand on them and the significance of that and the import of that. Because they, the sins of the nation, the sins of the people, were being placed on to the sacrificial animals. Well, if the sins of the nation are placed on them, they, they are unclean. They are a source of defilement. And so everybody in the camp needs to recognize that uh, we don't want that here. That would defile us. So we need to get rid of that, and that needs to be uh, disposed of outside the encampment. And that's, that's God's instruction to them to do that. Therefore, I'm sorry, it's not the ashes that are taken out. It's the carcass taken out, and they're actually burned out there. He says, these are burned outside the encampment. Therefore, he says, Jesus as well, so that he might make the people holy through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Okay, what is he saying? Well, he's making, he's making an analogy between the perceived uncleanness of the bull and the goat on the Day of, of Atonement, such that it has to be burned outside the camp. Uh, why is it burned outside the camp? Because symbolically, it's been made unclean. And it's perceived and treated as unclean. So it's burned outside the encampment. Jesus suffered outside the gate, he says. Isn't it ironic that the Romans, when they crucified him, took him outside the city wall, the, the gates of Jerusalem, and crucified him outside the gate. Isn't that ironic? It's kind of like the bull and the goat on the Day of Atonement. They, it reflected exactly what the people of Israel thought about Jesus. He's impure. He's corrupt. He's defiled. We don't want him. We don't accept him. He doesn't belong here. Destroy him, but get him out of Jerusalem. Get him out of here. That was their attitude. And that attitude is what led to the Romans crucifying him. And ironically, interestingly enough, when they crucified him, they crucified him outside the gate, which ironically reflects the very attitude of the Jewish people toward Jesus of that day, by analogy with the Day of Atonement. So therefore, Jesus as well, he suffered outside the gate. I'll come back to the parenthetical comment in a second. So then, let us go out to him outside the encampment, bearing his reproach. So Jesus bore the reproach of the people of Israel in his day. What what should be my response? What should be my attitude? If being a disciple of Jesus, if being connected with Jesus, brings the same reproach on me that Jesus received from the people of Israel in his day, then bring it on. So be it. 
Go, out, go outside the gate with him. That is, accept, accept the same maltreatment from your contemporaries that Jesus received in, in that day. Don't, don't avoid it. Don't run from it. Accept it. That's just the way it is. Why? For here we do not have a lasting city. Rather, we are seeking what is about to come. So, go outside the city. That is, go ahead and be exiled. Go ahead and be rejected. Go ahead and be uh, made persona non grata by, by the present-day Jerusalem. Why? It ain't going to last. And I, I think he specifically has in mind Jesus' prophecy that we now know was fulfilled in 70 A.D., that God is going to bring judgment on Jerusalem and the whole thing is going to be raised. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be leveled. So you want a part of this city? <laughs> you want to make sure you're included among the citizenry of this city? It, it's not long for this world. It's not worth it. Don't bother. What you want to have a part of is the Jerusalem that's going to come. That's what you want to have a part of. So if this present Jerusalem rejects you, don't sweat it. Because by going outside the city where Jesus is, you are securing for yourself a a citizenship in the Jerusalem that is to come. That's what you want. So go ahead and go outside the city and bear the same reproach that Jesus bore right now because you're not losing out on anything important or anything valuable or significant. Now, it, he, he makes that comment. I, I said I would comment on it. So that he might make, therefore Jesus as well, so that he might make the people holy through his own blood. That's just an allusion to what we've been talking about throughout all of Hebrews, the, the view of the role of Jesus' death in the atonement. And just in a nutshell, um, Jesus offered up as our high priest. He had to bring blood into the Holy of Holies as a token offering, appealing to God for mercy on our behalf. He took his own blood. He offered his own blood up as that, as that offering. And what did that do? It made us holy. That's not pure. That's not good. That's not righteous. He didn't make us any of those things. He made us holy. And what does it mean to be holy? Out of this sea of humanity, all of which is going to its destruction, you and I have been plucked out in the purposes of God, selected out to be given an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God rather than be destroyed. And that makes us special, uh, set apart, different, distinctive, marked by God. And the word that gets used in the New Testament for that is holy. We, are a, a, we belong to a special group, a special set of people. And what set us apart was the blood of Jesus. Jesus became our advocate who is going to make sure that we have a place in that select group of people when the time comes. Okay, another point then, 96. This is 13 verse 15. With a view to him, therefore, let us continually offer, and that's to Jesus, the one who uh, by his blood made us holy, with a view to that Jesus, with a view to him, therefore, 
let us continually offer up an offering of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips acknowledging his name. And do not neglect well-doing and sharing, for God is pleased with offerings such as these. Okay, so what is he talking about here? Now he's, he's back to the question of, you want to go to the temple and offer God offerings? Okay, great. Offer God offerings. But here's, here are the offerings that you need to offer God. Not animals, not vegetables. Don't be offering him that stuff. Offer him praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So be people who... In everything that you say and everything that you think, everything that you think about your lives, recognize who Jesus is and what he's done on your behalf such that your heart and your lips are praising God for the salvation that he's given you in Jesus. If you are that kind of person who have that kind of perspective and that kind of orientation, that's pleasing to God. He'd much rather have that then you're stinking animal. That's what he wants from you. So that's the offering to offer him. And then he adds two more. And do not neglect well-doing and sharing, for God is pleased with offerings such as these. So the other offering you can offer him is well-doing and sharing. I think in this context, the sharing is you've got You've got brothers and sisters who are suffering because they are being persecuted, they're being ripped off, they're being dealt with unjustly. Well, share what you have with them. Help take care of their needs by sharing your possessions with them. And well-doing is basically the same thing, just whatever else they need. Whatever good that you can do for them to help um, remedy their circumstances because they're being... Uh, mal- maltreated, remedy it. Do, do good to them. Do good to people. That's the offering that God will be pleased with. Now remember again that this, you know, this, may, this may sound all well and good, but remember the risk that his readers would have to be taking to do well-doing and sharing in this context. If I help take care, meet your needs because the man is against you, then I draw attention to the man, and the man's coming after me next. I make myself a target by showing solidarity with you and and identifying with you physically and tangibly meeting your needs. So it's dangerous to do this kind of thing. But being willing to do good, even at great risk to myself, that's the offering that is meaningful to God and is pleasing to God. Okay, goes on to another point. Notice these are, not, these are not exactly flowing. They're almost stream of consciousness here. Have confidence in your leaders and accept your subordinate place, for they keep watch over your very persons as those who must give an accounting. Do this so that they, mu- so that they might do this with joy and not be groaning for this would be disadvantageous for you. Now, I think the leaders that he has in mind are the same leaders that he had in mind a few, a couple paragraphs back. Although, in that case, 
those leaders, the thing he has to say about the leaders back then, would not apply to leaders today. Uh, he's not, believe the gospel that your leader tells you to believe. Nah, believe the gospel that the Bible tells you to believe. Don't believe the gospel that your leader, uh, your pastor, your teacher, whoever it is today tells you to believe. No, it's the original leaders that we want to listen to, not, not whoever the contemporary leader is. This one, however, I think would apply to any leader in any time, in any place, in any culture, to the extent that they are uh, filling the appropriate role, that they really are uh, looking out for your very persons. But let's put it in context. Have confidence in your leaders and accept your subordinate place, for they keep watch over your very persons as those who must give an, an accounting. It's, this is hard to fit in exactly. Why would this be relevant in this particular context? Except that pressure, the pressure of tribulation, it, it's, like, it's like weight on a, on a fault line. It, it causes things to, it, it disrupts things. Um, even if not directly and logically, it just upsets your life, and all kinds of stuff begins to come out that wouldn't otherwise come out. And that's what I, I think we're dealing with here. The pressure on the community from persecution is beginning to disrupt the relationship between the original, older generation, original believers who brought the word of God and proclaimed it to people, and the younger generation coming along who were not privy to the words of Jesus directly. They were not eyewitnesses to these things. They did not see the miracles. They did not live through the day of Pentecost. None of the stuff that the apostles experienced did the, did the, early, the younger generations experience. And what's one of the things that that can foster? A kind of jealousy, a kind of envy, why did you get to have those proofs and evidences and experiences and so on, and, and I didn't get to? Maybe you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Maybe I know better than you do. I mean, you're just, you're just pronouncing all this stuff and talking about all this stuff and telling us all this stuff, but uh, maybe you're not as good as you think you are or as important and significant as you think you are. And you can see human nature reacting uh, out of a kind of envy. Well, I'll show you. I won't follow you. <laughs> I won't listen to you. I won't listen to your counsel. I won't listen to your teaching. I won't listen to your truth. Because who do you think you are? That appears to be what lies behind this exhortation. So he's saying, no, don't go there. Have confidence in your leaders and accept your subordinate place. And what's the subordinate place? I'm somebody who's relegated to simply taking your word for what you heard, for taking your word for what, the, what Jesus taught and what the truth is. Most of us throughout most of history are in that subordinate place. And are we willing to accept that? Have confidence in your leaders and accept your subordinate place, for they keep watch over your very persons. They're not, they're not in this for themselves. 
they're doing what they're doing and they are teaching what they're teaching and they are acting the way they're acting for your sake. They want you to know what they know. They want you to see what they have seen. They want you to believe what they are certain of is the truth. That's why they're doing this. This is not grandstanding. This is not to bring glory to themselves, to bring honor to themselves. It's for you that they're doing what they're doing. For they keep watch over your very persons as those who must give an accounting. And in fact, they better be watching out for you and not trying to bring glory to themselves because they're going to, have, they're going to be held account for how they're teaching and what they're doing and how they're relating to you. They have one over them who's going to be their judge and hold them into account. Do this so that they may do this with joy and not be groaning. So he's saying, saying, come on, you guys, would you stop making life miserable for people like me? Would Would you just listen? Would you listen to sound counsel? Would you listen to wisdom? Would you listen to the truth? Would you believe the truth? Stop fighting it. Stop being such donkeys, stubborn donkeys who won't be led. Um, Listen to your leaders and go with them. You just make life miserable to them. You make them groan if you don't. And to make those leaders groan is not to your advantage, he says. For this would be disadvantageous for you. It doesn't speak well of you if you are chafing against the, the, the bridle of uh, the gospel that they are leading you with. That's not to your advantage. It may spell your doom, your destruction. And he finally, he says, pray for us. Now we are persuaded. Uh, now I, I, uh, I want to translate this differently. Let me find my new translation. So... I'm changing this a little bit from what you've got. Pray for us. Now we are persuaded that we have a good grasp of the mind of God and want to perform well in every respect. So I urge you to do this all the more to the end that I may be quickly returned to you. That, that, that's really a puzzling. The syntax is puzzling. The, the this that he wants you to do is pray for us. It goes back to the sentence before, pray for us. I urge you to do this, pray for us all the more, to the end that I may be quickly returned to you. So what is he asking prayer for? That he might be released from prison. And we're going to see here in a second, I'm virtually certain that Hebrews is being written from house arrest in Rome. That's where this is coming from. So he's in house arrest in Rome. He's asking them, pray for us, that we might be released from our house arrest, and that we might be quickly returned to you. So that, that's what he... Now, why? I urge you to do this all the more to the end because we're persuaded that we have a good grasp of the mind of God and want to perform well in every respect. In other words, I still think we're valuable to you. So pray for our release that we might be quickly returned to you so that the value that I bring to you can be, can, be, can be of benefit to you. Now, why does he have value? Because he's persuaded that he has a good grasp of the mind of God. 
That is, yeah, the, the word is usually translated conscience. Uh, the problem is our English word conscious doesn't mean much anywhere even close to what we mean by conscience. Conscience comes from a, is a compound from a word that means to know and a word that means with. It's your, it's, it's your knowing with. Well, knowing with who? With God. So when I purport to know with God, when I purport to understand what God understands, when I purport to believe what God believes, when I purport to see what God sees, I, that, that set of things I, I believe on that basis is my conscience. He talks in 1 Corinthians 10 about people who have a weak conscience, a faulty conscience. They claim to know what God thinks, but they don't know what they're talking about. It's a faulty conscience. They're wrong in their belief uh, about what, God, what, what they claim God thinks. If you have a good conscience, you, your understanding of things is a good understanding of things. God really does see the world the way you think he sees the world. That's to have a good conscience. We would never use conscience that way. It would be, we'd translate it as something like understanding, a good understanding. So I call it a grasp of the mind of God here. You have a, Paul says, I think I have a good grasp of the mind of God. I know what his purposes are. I know what he's promised. I know how he's operating in the world. I know how he decides who he's going to show mercy to and who he's not going to show mercy to. I, I think I get it. It's what God was promising Peter. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of God. Well, what, what's the key to the kingdom of God? Peter, I'm going to give you an understanding of what it is on the insides of a person that is operating and what the attributes of that and what the characteristics of that inward thing that makes someone chosen of God and destined for the kingdom of, of heaven. You're going to get it, Peter. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to give you that kind of understanding, that kind of insight. Well, Paul is claiming for himself that kind of insight, that kind of understanding. I know what God is doing in the world. I know how this all works. I know what he's promised it. I'm promised you. I know where this is all headed. And out of that understanding, I think I could help you. So maybe you want me back with you. So pray that I might be released quickly. Nothing left now except one final benediction to the letter. Verse 99, uh, chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, the one who brought the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus from the dead, brought up, the, uh, up from the dead, may he, in connection with the blood of the covenant that pertains to the final age, supply you with every good thing to satisfy his will, creating in you that which is pleasing in his sight, in view of Jesus, the Messiah. To him be glory into the age of the ages. Amen. Now, to get to the gist of what he's saying, it's basically a prayer. And what is he praying? I pray that God will create in you, will create in you everything that needs to be in you in order for Jesus to be of any value to you. 
Well, we know from other contexts. What does he need to create in me? Belief, an openness and a receptivity to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He needs to create in me a spirit that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He needs to create in me a spirit that grieves at evil in myself and in the world. He needs to create in me uh, a spirit that, instead of being proud and cocky and arrogant, is, is reduced to humility by my recognition that I have nothing to offer God, uh, that I'm poor in spirit. Everything in the Beatitudes, that if, if, that if you find that within you, then you know that your destiny is to be a member of the kingdom of God. What's his prayer? That God will create that in you. You know, that, that in of itself is revolutionary in so much of Christian culture today. We're not accustomed to thinking that it's God's job to make me a believer. We think it's my job to become a believer, and God is just wringing his hands, waiting for that to happen so that he can go to work. But he's not dare going to work in my life until I believe. That's not what Paul thinks. Paul's praying that God will have the mercy and the grace to go to work in you, to create within you everything that needs to be there in order that in view of Jesus, the Messiah, I will, uh, the blood of his covenant will uh, get me admittance into the eternal kingdom of God. Okay? Now, we're not done with Hebrews, even though that was the last thing he said. I would argue that from verse 22 on, just as we found in the book of Romans, this is not part of the, this is not part of what we call Hebrews. It's not part of the writing that he wrote. This is a cover letter. And somewhere along the process of copying this, they went into a church library and they found the, the document that we call Hebrews along with the accompanying letter that was sent when it was sent to this particular community. And it was preserved right along the, the writing itself. And over time, it just kept getting copied right along with the book of Hebrews until probably over the course of time, it was no longer recognized that it was even different, that it was even a different document. And it may very well not have been a different document in the sense that, well, yeah, it probably was. It was probably on a different piece of sheepskin to start to, in originally. Uh, so let's look at that. So I'm calling it the cover letter. Now I urge you, brothers, be content with this word of exhortation, for I have corresponded with you but briefly. Now, there's two ways to look at that. He could be saying, be content with the book of Hebrews for I could have gone on forever, but I cut it short and I made it brief. I don't consider Hebrews brief. So I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's been very thorough. I think he's argued his case um, exhaustively in the book of Hebrews. I think he said everything he thinks he needs to say. So I don't think it makes sense that he would call that I've written to you, but briefly. I think what he's saying is, you know, the the opening letter is, I hope you're content with the document I'm sending because this is a really short memo. (laughs) 
I'm I'm just going to say a couple of words here, but I've written this whole big, long argument. I hope you're content with that. You know, I'm sorry I can't be more personal. I'm sorry I can't address you more directly. I'm going to be really brief here, but, but I am thinking of you. I've sent you this document that I think will be of value to you. So the word of exhortation is Hebrews, and notice that's basically all Hebrews is, is one exhortation after another with one argument stuck in the middle. Be content with this word of exhortation for this note that I'm writing to you right now is way too brief, but I hope you'll be content with the word of exhortation. You know our brother Timothy. He's been released. So Timothy apparently has been released from whatever imprisonment or obligation that he has. He has been released. If he comes soon, I will visit you in him. And I think what he means by that is, I'm in prison, I can't come to you. But Timothy's been released. If he shows up pretty soon, consider Timothy's visit to you, me visiting you. I will visit you in his visit, visiting you. Greet all of your leaders and all the hagioi. So whatever community this is, and we have no clue what community this is, but whatever community it is, greet your leaders and greet all the usually translated saints. The hagioi are the ones who are children of God, who have been sanctified by God, set apart for the kingdom of God. Greet them all. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. And it's the fact that he says, those from Italy greet you, that makes me quite confident that this is coming from Rome while he's in house arrest uh, in Rome at the end of the book of Acts, probably. Okay, that's that. Um, what, what are your comments or questions or objections? Or? So when you talked about the metaphor that Paul uses about going outside the gates with Jesus, I want to make sure I'm clear on what you think that metaphor is, that Jesus suffered and was persecuted outside the city, and that if we go outside those gates with him, we will likely be persecuted, and, and that should be okay because we're following Jesus? Yeah, the... I probably wasn't clear enough. I mean, basically, that's right. But what's the significance of it being outside the gate? The significance of being outside the gate is you're there because you're being rejected. Uh, just as the animals that had been part of, on the Day of Atonement, of those offerings on the Day of Atonement, have, are not acceptable inside the gate, so they're being rejected. You've got to go outside the gate. Uh, Jesus was not acceptable inside Jerusalem. They, they were going to throw him outside the gate, what, which is to say they held him in contempt and they rejected him. So to go outside the gate is to say, accept the fact that you're going to be rejected by Jerusalem. Accept that. And I'm wondering if maybe he's also saying because the city is Jerusalem, which was the center of Judaism, that he's saying reject Judaism? And go, go outside your Jewish rituals? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I think it's coming at it the other direction. Judaism will reject you. 
uh, because strictly speaking, you are not rejecting Judaism. You're actually, in Jesus, we are fulfilling everything that Judaism is really all about and really stands for. So we don't believe Jesus because we reject Judaism. We believe Jesus because he's the fulfillment of Judaism. But most Jews aren't going to read it that way, and they're going to reject you. That, so, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think what he's saying is accept that rejection, but you're right. You're absolutely right. It's Judaism that's rejecting you. Yeah. If we could go back to the end of chapter 12, where we talked about um, let us show gratitude by which you may offer God an acceptable service to the reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. It, I used to think that that was a threat of judgment, but I now I understand it to be the fire in the temple, the, how they used to burn up the offering and it was pleasing to God and was a uh, pleasing aroma to him as the smoke rose up into the heavens, that he will accept that as service. Hmm. Um, I'm inclined to take it as judgment, judgment in this okay. case. Um, not too many v- verses back, he, it's been very explicit. Uh, he quotes some prophets. Um, where is it? If you go back to... Being shaken? No, further back than that. Um, a little while back, I guess it's several chapters back. <laughs> But he talked about, uh, yeah, maybe all the way back to the end of 10, yeah. But he talked about God being, it doesn't call it a consuming fire, but a a fury of fire. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, and just right right before that, what did he say about the fire? Oh, yeah, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume yeah, exactly. the adversaries. I, that, I would see the end of 12 as repeating that, that metaphor and that theme. So that would have to bounce back to the, uh, the Torah where he's describing the people and what's about to happen to them. Yeah. And he's contrasting, he's telling, let your life be different than that quit playing this religious game like they did, but rather honestly with gratitude serve God. Because yeah. you can't fake it. You can't lie to him. And once more, there will be a final shaking. Okay. Yeah, because it's not... Yeah, yeah. We're not... God is not playing here. This is for keeps. And worshiping him, serving him is not optional. Uh, it's not something we can do if we want to. <laughs> something we can do if we get around to it. It's an obligation that we have, and God will destroy those who refuse to serve him. That's the, I think that's the consuming fire part. And then when he says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it does make sense that Jesus is the message, and that hasn't changed. <clears throat> There's no reflection on the, the statement that uh, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. With Jesus is the same, yeah. you're saying? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, He's not talking about his character or his, the surety of his promise. or. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Because th- Casey's gone on to an entirely different point, I think, at that point. So I don't, I don't think there's really any connection between 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. The context of that is why you should not be love money. The context of Jesus is the same, is uh, what your leader, pay attention to your leaders and, and the word of God that came to you through them. And then next, right after Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is don't go chasing after strange teachings. So uh, it just seems to me pretty clear that what he means by Jesus is the same is the message about Jesus and the gospel that is centered in Jesus does not vary. And it's not going to be amended. It's not going to be changed. It's not going to be altered. All apologies to Joseph Smith, you're wrong. This is not improved upon. The, the message that the leaders, the, uh, the first generation of believers taught to us, that's the message from God. And anyone who comes along and innovates and changes that, alters that, gives another version to that, um, is perverting the message. They're not improving on it. They're, they're perverting it, and, and we are making a huge mistake if we pay attention to that and follow that. Now, having said that, it's very important to understand that the message that we have to believe is the message they proclaimed, not the message we proclaim. We may think that our Christianity is biblical, but that's the question. Is it? If it isn't, it doesn't matter that everyone else around me believes it and accepts it and claims that this is the, you know, this is the gospel message straight from Paul himself. I would argue there's all kinds of innovations in evangelical, Bible-believing, conservative Christian culture, all kinds of strange new teachings that have crept in and made our Christianity today what it is. And the, the task for any serious disciple of Jesus is to, is to look through, sort through all the flotsam and jetsam and get back to what did the original leaders actually teach? What was their gospel? What was their message? That's what we want to believe. That's what we want to follow. Thanks, Jack. I'm having a hard time synthesizing how a Jew who would be attracted to kind of leaving Jesus behind and going back to Jewish religious practices would also be attracted to kind of leaving Jesus behind and engaging in Roman perversions. Are you seeing those as the same group of people? If that makes sense. So, so back to the, the, the start one on, of thirteen, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I thought about that this week, and the only way I can make sense, if, if I'm at all on the right track in why that's included there, then it must be that the persecution also involves Romans as well as Jews. Okay, so Romans who have converted to Christianity, and their particular temptation is to go back to Roman cultural practices. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, at least it, his readers must include. I mean, even if they're even if they're Jews, that the the problem is this is a big question for me that I can't reconcile is why why would a Jew engage in sexual immorality? Just, I mean, a, a Jew is a Jew, right? And I maybe I don't know enough about the state of morality in Judaism of that day. That's possible, but. If I, if I assume that they are sexually pure, 
or at least that that's an ideal within Judaism, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that they would, that they would take that tactic. Um, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but it does, it does make sense that, I mean, th- take some place like Ephesus or Corinth. Who are the people doing the persecuting? The Romans. Who are the people that are instigating the, the, the persecution? The Jews. The Jews come and say, this guy's, this guy's claiming that there's another king besides Caesar. Get him. You know? So both are complicit in the persecution uh, in many places in the book of Acts. And so I assume that that's what's behind this is one, one way to blend in and not make yourself a target in a Greco-Roman culture would be sexual immorality. But why would a Jew do that? And that, that's a problem. And that may be a fatal flaw in, my, in the way I'm reading this. But, yeah, that is a problem. Thank you. Um, in my Bible, I, I don't have verse markers, so I don't remember. But it's where he's talking about pray for us, that we may be quickly restored. They've translated it, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things, which going with the, like, I'll be restored to you, pray that I'll be restored to you sooner because I'm in prison or under house arrest, Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm sure that I have been acting in a clear conscience and have not actually done anything wrong because I've desired to act honorably. Um, so pray that I will be released because somebody will recognize that I haven't done anything wrong. So I was curious, since that work seemed to work so well in my mind, their translation with that scenario, I'm curious what was leading you in the direction of um, translating it differently. I, I'd have to go. I, I didn't bring my Greek text. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, you know, when you put it as clear conscience, that, that has a very definite connotation to us in our English. But it's literally a good sunadesis in Greek. Well, is that, is that the same thing as a clear conscience? I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not even sure conscience is ever used that way. It might be, but I'm not persuaded that conscience is ever used the way that we use conscience where the issue is my evaluation, my internal evaluation of my own blame or, uh, or not. Now, if it can be, yeah, then, then that's something I need to seriously consider. But I, I think I didn't even go down that because I've already decided in my, in my past life that conscience doesn't, doesn't really mean that. Okay. But, I, but I may be wrong about that. So that, that's worth thinking about. Thanks. Okay. What, what's interesting... When you stop to think about, when you look back on Hebrews and everything he says, as he as he calls it a word of exhortation, and you think about the word of exhortation, I mean this is this is hell and brimstone, fire breathing, you better watch out kind of stuff. And granted, it it's kind of tempered and softened by all of this really difficult to understand language. I mean the you know the the toothless Arkansas evangelist who's who's telling you to repent is a lot easier to understand than the book of 
book of Hebrews. But when it comes right down to it, there isn't anything fundamentally different between what Paul is doing here and the street preacher who's saying, repent. What is he? <laughs> what do they say? Repent. Uh, you know, just repent. He's not saying anything different. And it, it just struck me as how totally uncool this is. This is just so uncool. But Paul's not the least bit embarrassed. I mean, he not only does it once, he does it over and over and over and over and over again. I, read a doc- I, I, I watched a documentary that just had my blood boiling about uh, an incredible injustice done by our government to a citizen and, and, and various people. And you know, how, do you, how do you deal with that blood boiling the only way you can deal with it is to remind yourself, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Those people are going to get it. But you at least want to say, boy, are you guys going to get it. You know, you'd like to write that letter or something, but the minute, the minute I think about penning that letter, I think, you know, that would be totally worthless. You would come across as such a total kook that it wouldn't even register. But it it dawned on me, look where we've come. Look how bad off we are. Look how ignorant we are that an exhortation telling you your very destiny is at stake, um, you better repent, is completely dismissed as being kooky. That's the culture's fault. That's That's how far we have fallen. That's how far away from God we are that we can't even, you know, we can't even give a good old-fashioned fire-breathing hell, fire-and-brimstone sermon any longer and have it being given any credibility at all. But Paul has a brief word of exhortation for us here in the book of Hebrews. Thank you.